Open your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. And it's about trusting in the Lord and not useless idols. The psalmist is writing here about the Lord who had given his people a great victory. And the people wanted to acknowledge this great big victory. You know, they wanted to witness before the pagan neighbors about this great victory that God had given them. They wanted to give God the glory for this great victory. If their neighbors had visited the returned exiles and had seen their temple, their rebuilt temple, they would have asked, where's your God? And the reason they would have asked, where's your God? When they saw the rebuilt temple, it's because there were no idols in it. Their temples or shrines or wherever there's were filled with with gods. And when they would see the rebuilt temple of the living God, there were no idols in it. So they would ask, where's your God? Because again, there were no temples, no idols in the temple or in the city. So the question gave the Jews the chance to compare the false gods of their neighbors with their true and living God of Israel, just like today. You know, we need to tell people about our great and wonderful God. You know, we, to, to compare the, the world's idols with our wonderful God. So this psalm was written as, as a, a litany or a, 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 a series of things, uh, uh, praises and, and things of God, with the leader opening in verse 1. The people then responded to the leader's opening in verses 2 through 8. And then the choir responded to the leader's opening uh, in verses 9 through 11. And then the people again responded to the leader's opening in verses 12 through 13. The priests or the choir spoke in verses 14 and 15. And the people closed this psalm in verses 16 through 18. The psalm might have been used as a dedication of the second temple. It not only tells where the God of Israel is, but what kind of God he is. So this psalm is a group psalm of praise. It focuses on the wonder of the Lord in salvation of his people. Several sections of this psalm are used in Psalm 135. Now, the theme of this psalm is that God is alive and he's thinking about us and he's caring for us and we should put him first in our life. The author, anonymous, we don't know who it is. But the psalm was sung in the upper room at the time that our Lord remembered the Passover with his disciples and when he instituted the Lord's Supper in celebration of Israel's delivery from slavery in Egypt. G. Campbell Morgan said this, This psalm is born of passion for the glory of the name of Jehovah. Not first for the welfare of the people does he care, but for the vindication of his God. This is really an important thing to think about. And we don't hear enough of this in our worship music today. A lot of worship songs today speak about the man or the woman who's singing the song. What they do for the Lord. What they've done for the Lord. Instead of what he has done for us or who he is. We're always in danger of putting man's well-being or who he is before the glory of God. What I love about our worship team here, you know, is that the, Sal will call me and say, hey, what's, what's, what's the study for this week? Or those, those who are leading uh, the worship, hey, what's the topic of the study this week? They're going to pray and, and God, for God to give them psalms that speak about the subject that we're praying for or we're, we're going to teach. And they pray before they, they come out and worship and they pray after they worship. What a, a blessing that is to know 
hey, they're, they're seeking God. They're asking God, Lord, what should we sing? What do you want us to sing? And they're coming and they're singing about Jesus. They're thinking about the, the thing, singing about the glory of God. And that's exactly what we should always be doing. God should be first and foremost in our prayers and in our songs and, and, and you know, all that we do uh, to the glory of God. So let's begin now with verse 1, Psalm 115. And the psalmist says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. And here's why. Because of your mercy and because of your truth. Whenever we come to prayer... We should never, it should never be about us per se. That is, we should never boast about ourselves. We should never let our opinion, uh, no, uh, no matter how important we think we are, we should let those things have any place in our prayers or in our praises. But we need to let our prayer and our praises center in who God is, to center in God's glory. You know, let our prayers be all about God. If we have received any mercy, or if we've served God in any way, or if we've been successful in our ministry, or, or what we've done for the Lord, okay, we can't take any credit for it, or any glory of it for ourselves. We have to give it all totally to God. And we must never think that we do anything for God in our own strength. You know, pat myself on the, oh, did you see what, I, look what I did. Or say to myself, I did this. Or think that we deserve anything from God because of our own righteousness. But understand that all the good that we do is by the power of His grace. And all the good that we have is the gift of His simple mercy. And for that reason, He, our God, must get all of the praise. Don't say, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. Because of, or because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Because neither one is true. Everything that we say and everything that we do must be done in the glory and in the honor of his name and not unto us. And that's what the psalmist said in the beginning of verse uh, uh, 1 of, of Psalm 50, uh, 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. All of our victories have to be laid at his feet. They have to be given over to him. Lord, I was able to do this because of you. You're the one who gave me the strength. You're the one who led me. You're the one who gave me the wisdom. All of our victories are to be laid at his feet because he's the one who sits on the throne because that's the right place for them. Our victories are to be laid at his feet. The, the, psalmer, the psalmist asks here that God's name, notice, unto thee, O Lord, unto you, he asked that the Lord's name, not the nation's name, be glorified. Not the people be glorified, but unto you, O Lord. The glory of God, not the honor of his people alone, is at stake in the ridiculing of the heathen. Too many times we ask God to glorify his name with ours. O Lord, look what we've done. Look what we've done, Lord. You know, we don't seek glory with his name. Because it says he will share his glory with no man. But again, glory is totally to the honor of God. For example, we might pray for help to do a good job. So that our name will be spoken of. So that our work will get the credit. Now, that will happen when you're serving God. And you're serving God with a right heart. That will happen. 
And there's nothing wrong with looking good or impressing others. The problem is when it comes that, that we want to look to, uh, good no matter what happens to God's reputation in the process. We're not interested in God's reputation as much as we are our own. That's, when the problem, that's where the problem lies. Before you pray, ask yourself, who's going to get the credit if God answers my prayer? Mercy and truth can be recognized as kindness and faithfulness, his faithfulness. Look at verse 2 now. Again, the question, okay, verse 2 says, Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Now, the heathen all around them was ridiculing them. They were saying, where is your God? Like I said, if they were to see the rebuilt temple and go inside, and they go, well, where's your God? Because they didn't see any idols. In other words, you say he's your God. Well, where is he? Why doesn't he help you? And this is the kind of ridicule Christians often hear when they're going through a difficult time. You know, when things aren't working out the way they, they, they want them to or think they should. And especially like when things go wrong. When something really bad happens, there's always somebody who asks, where's your God now? I, I thought, you know, your God took care of you and he looked out. I thought he loved you. And, you know, they go through the whole routine. Look what's happened to you. If he really cared, he would have done something. But because the idolatrous, natures, uh, the idolatrous, idolatrous nations couldn't see or touch God, this is why they'd ask their question, well, where's your God? But the answer is given to them right away. Look at verse 3. But our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. You don't see our God because he's not made an idol and put in our, in our, in our temple. He's in heaven. You see, God allowed them to suffer because of their sin. And it was according to God's will, God's plan, and God's purpose. Israel is starting to accept their circumstances as being from the hand of God. His will is sovereign. His will is good. His will is acceptable, and it's perfect. He does whatever he pleases, and what he does is always good. And the Bible tells us he does all things well. Now listen to the psalmist's defense for why it's so foolish to trust idols. Notice what he starts in verse 4, 4 through 8. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them, that is, those who make their idols, are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The psalmist says, hey, our God is in heaven. Our God's the creator. Our God is a spirit. So man didn't make him. The gods of the heathen, on the other hand, the gods of the heathen, they were made out of silver or gold or wood or some other substance. They were the work of men's hands. The heathen made their own gods. And as it's listed here in verses 4 through 8, the heathen made their gods with all of the sense organs. But the problem is they can't use their sense organs. Notice the psalmist said they have mouths, but they can't speak. They can't talk to their people. All right, these, these, these idols, they can't talk to the people. They can't make covenants with their people. They can't give promises to their people. They can't guide their people. They can't encourage their people. Our God speaks to us. He encourages us. He makes promises to us. He makes covenants with us. 
They don't have they, they have eyes, but they can't offer their followers any protection or oversight. But our God's eyes are upon us all the time, and we can trust Him. The psalmist says, "Your gods, they have ears." Or, or they, 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 they don't have ears. They made them with ears. But no, ears, no matter how much the, the idolaters pray, their God can't hear them. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? He said, our God's eyes are upon us and his ears are open to our cries, the psalmist said in Psalm thirty-four, fifteen, No noses. The figures have them, but noses, noses speaks of God re, uh, receiving our worship. You know, smelling the incense of our worship. And being pleased with what we bring him. No hands that are of any value. No hands. So the workers whose hands made the idols, their hands were more powerful than the idols that they call gods. Because they made their gods with their hands. Our God is able to work for us as we seek to serve him. The psalmist said in Psalm 8.3 that his fingers made the universe. And his arm brought salvation. No feet they can help. The people had to carry their idols. Isaiah, I'll read Isaiah in a minute, but the people had to carry their idols. But our God carries us and he walks with us, according to Psalm Isaiah 41, 10 and 13. In other words, the gods of the heathen can't help them. And Isaiah gave the best <clears throat> sarcastic description against idolatry in the Bible. Isaiah 44, verses 14 through 17. Listen to what he said. He says, speaking of men who are idolaters, he cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the cedar in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And after his care, he uses part of the wood to make a fire to warm himself and bake his bread. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and he makes himself a god for people to worship. He makes an idol and he bows down and he praises it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. Then he takes what's left of that tree and makes his god, a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worships and and prays to it, and he prays to it, rescue me, he says, you're my god. That was from the New Living Translation. So again, how foolish. And then when the idol is made, that, the man has to carry it on his back wherever he goes. I mean, can you get the picture here? A man is carrying his God. God says in Isaiah 46, 4, he says to man, I am the Lord. I will carry you. And idols can be stolen. You see, Laban didn't know that Rachel had stolen his gods and he was all worried about it. And he said to Jacob, hey, why did you steal my gods? So the question is, does your God carry you? Or do you carry your God? To a lot of people, their religion is a burden. It is a hassle. It's something that they have to carry on their shoulders. Again, does God carry you or do you carry him? If you have to carry your God, think of it. That's a modern form of idolatry. And then the psalmist goes on to say, those who make them are just like them. Those who make and worship false gods become just like idols themselves, powerless, useless. The heathen make their gods in their own image, and then they become just like them. And I've probably told you this story before. The, 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 the natives, the primitive natives in Papua New Guinea, 
They had a, they had a congenital birth defect. They, they, they had one leg shorter than the other. And they, they made their God. They made a little statue. And yeah, when they made that statue, one leg was shorter than the other. They were like their God. And that's what the, the psalmist is saying here. We become like them. You see, we, we've, we've lowered God to our image, to a picture of what we think he is. So, again, this is, this is the greatest tragedy. Not what the idols can do, but what they can do to the people who worship them. Lead them astray. Paul said they're not actually idols. You're worshiping demons. This is the effect they have on us, that we worship what we worship, we become. We become like the God that we worship. Our idols today, they can be money, they can be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife. It can be a job, a career, it can be pleasure, power, anything. Anything that we give our hearts over to that takes the place of God. But if we worship anything other than God, we become a hireling and we become hard or petty and shallow. The enemy has ridiculed God's people. And now the Levites are going to answer those who ridicule. Look at verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So what should the people of God who know the true God of Israel do? They should worship him, obviously. But verses 9 through 11 says something just as important. It tells us that the people of God should trust God. And why is that? Because verse 9 says he's our true help and he's our shield. Idols are nothing and they can do nothing. They are totally helpless. They are totally useless. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't speak. They can't touch. They can't walk. But our God helps us to see. He helps us to hear. He helps us to speak. He touches us. He walks with us. Again, idols have to be carried while our true and living God carries us every step of the way. Three times in these verses, 9 through 11, we're told to trust in the Lord. Now, three times, and we've heard this taught before, when God speaks to us the first time, we should, we should definitely listen. There shouldn't have to be more than one time. But he knows how dull we are sometimes, and he has to repeat something to us over and over again. So when God speaks to us the first time, yeah, we should listen. If he says something twice, we should pay even more attention. But when he says something three times, it's like our mom's dad says, I don't want to have to tell you one more time. When God speaks and he says something three times, we should stop everything that we're doing and give him our full attention. And that is to study and to think about and to memorize and to meditate on. And joyfully obey what God has said. So, what is God wanting to do? He's wanting to get it into our hard heads when he repeats something. He wants us to trust in him. And not other things that that so easily take his rightful place in our lives. That take up our time. So again, do you trust him? Do you trust him?
It's a question we must really ask ourselves, and the example, you know, is going to show, you know, uh, again, the truth of that. We say we do. We say we have faith in God. We say we trust in the Word of God. We say we trust His Word. Now, there was a French, a famous French acrobat in the 1800s named uh, Jean-Francois Gravelet, also known as Blondin. Now, it says that he crossed the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, 160 feet over the water. And one time it says that he went halfway across, he stopped in the middle, cooked an omelet, and he ate it. Then he went back to the other side. It says another time he carried his manager across the falls on his back. Afterward, he turned to a man in the crowd and he asked the man, hey, he said, he told, he says, do you think I could do that with you? The man said, of course, I, of course, I believe you could do that with me. He says, I just saw you do it. He says, well, hop, hop on up here and I'll carry you across. He said, not on your life. He saw the guy do it. You know, he saw it with his own eyes. Yeah, I believe you can do it. Well, come on. Come on. No way. That's the way we are with God many times. We say we trust God. We believe God. I know you can, what you can do, Lord. But then when it comes to really trusting him and, and doing the real thing, oh, we really don't believe it. If we do trust God, will we be disappointed? No, never. Those who trust in idols or false gods are going to be disappointed. Because again, the idols are useless. They can't do anything. And the worshiper is not going to get anything from them. But those who trust in God, man, will never be disappointed. Because he's living, he's true, he's compassionate, he's faithful, he's merciful. He's all of those things. And God takes pleasure in doing good to those who seek him, who trust in him, and obey him. Verses 12 through 13. The Lord has been mindful of us. Think of that. He's been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Notice both great and small. It doesn't matter who you are. Those who fear him, he will bless. The Lord remembers us. And what a great truth to know. There are so many times when we feel like we're all alone. Like we're, like, like we're just cut off from everybody. Feeling, like, uh, feeling alone and like we're abandoned. And sometimes even from God. But God hasn't forgotten us. He can't forget us. And he hasn't forgotten you. Now, I don't know your name many times. And I don't know your address for sure. But God does. God knows you, you know, and, and he knows who you are. He knows where you live. He knows all about you. God not only knows your number, he knows your name and all about you. Trust him. And Psalm 147, 4, I love this. It says that he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. You know how many, how many stars there are in the galaxies and the universe? I don't, but I know there's a lot. But God knows exactly how many there are. Not only that, he knows the name of each one. Now, if he knows the name of each star, don't you think he knows your name? God will bless you as well. He'll bless your friends, your house, your church, and your community if you will only turn to him. 
The thing that's so wonderful, verse 12 says, he's mindful of us. Can you believe that? He's mindful of us. The word mindful means to mark so as to be recognized according to Strong's exhaustive concordance. I love that. We're marked. It means to mark so as to be recognized. I believe that mark is the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to know him. In reality, God sees, he understands, and he thinks about us. And when we're depressed by troubles and struggles with life, we should be encouraged that God keeps us in his thoughts and he knows us by name. Like Jeremiah says in 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil. The psalmist said in 139, 17 and 18, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Can you imagine? I know you, you've probably all gone to the beach and you stood there on the seashore and, and, and think about it. The grains of the sand. He says, my thoughts of you are more than the grains of the sand on the seashore. That's mind-blowing. And if he thinks about you, which he does, if he thinks about you, then for sure his help is close by. The psalmist said in Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, he will not fear, or we will not fear. Starting here now, the congregation answers. Here the emphasis now is on the blessing of God. Verse 13 says, for those both small and great. You see, God's blessing is for you no matter who you are. If you'll just stop trusting in yourself and in your own wisdom and in your own plans and instead trust, start trusting in God. God blesses small and great with salvation. Now, we know that not everybody is going to be saved. And nobody who expects God to acknowledge his or her own good works or merit will enter heaven. People who think, well, I've, I'm a good person. I begin all, you know, I, I, I give to charity and I do this and I do that. And, and you know, they, they think that, you know, all of their good works is going to get them into heaven. That God's going to acknowledge that. Say, well, yeah, you were a pretty good person. We're not going to enter heaven on our works or our merit. Salvation is by the grace of God. Through the work of Jesus Christ alone, period, done. And if you'll come to God that way, through Jesus Christ, trusting him rather than in yourself, then you'll be saved. Even if you're poor, uneducated, unpopular, either in your own or others' eyes, because he saves both small and great. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Children can be saved. The despised can be saved. The small and great can be saved. Those who are overlooked, those who are abused can be saved. Verse 13 says, He will bless those who fear Him, small and great alike. Because God blesses small and great alike in matters of Christian life. You don't have to be a highly favored person to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's often the disfavored and disadvantaged who grow the most and deepest 
Why? Because they're not trusting in their own wisdom. They're not trusting in their education. They're not trusting in, in, in their own strength. They're trusting in the Lord. The Bible says in James 1, 5, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. God will not resent it if you come and ask him for wisdom. It will be given to you, James says. And by wisdom, James isn't just talking about knowledge, but about the ability to make wise decisions in difficult situations. Whenever we need wisdom, we can pray to God and God will help us. And then... When we pray, be patient. God will not leave you alone with your problems. He will stay close and he will help you to grow. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Notice that he said, lean not on your own understanding. We were made to lean upon God. When people say oh, uh, Christianity and God is a crutch. Yep. <laughs> yep. I need to lean on him. Scripture tells me, lean not on my own understanding. When we have an important decision to make, sometimes we feel like, where do I go? Who do I trust? There's nobody I can go to. Sometimes we feel like not even God. But understand, God knows what's best for us. And God is a better judge of what we need than we are. How many times have we asked for something that and you look back and go, oh, I'm sure glad God didn't answer that prayer. We have to trust him totally in every choice that we make. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use our brain. <laughs> that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about things carefully or, or use our brain and the ability to reason. That's why God gave us a brain. Just for that purpose reason. Uh, Isaiah 118, God said, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's you and I think about this. Let's reason over this thing. But we shouldn't trust our own ideas to the point that we leave others out and we leave God out. As, as Proverbs said, we must not be wise in our own eyes, but we should be willing. We need to be willing to listen to and to be corrected by God's word or wise counsel. But we are to bring decisions to God in prayer. Use the Bible as your guide. And then follow God's leading. Because he will direct your path both by guiding and protecting you. And again, the psalmist said, God blesses small and great alike when they're about to die. If you're trusting him, how could the one who's been faithful to bless you all through your life abandon you at the moment you're ready to die? It's just the opposite. God will be even closer to you then. Verses 14 and 15. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So it's promised that the Lord shall increase you, verse 14 says. Those that God blesses, he increases. That was one of the earliest and most ancient blessings. Genesis 1, 28, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. God's blessings give an increase. Increase in number. Building up the family, increase in wealth, adding to the estate and honor, especially an increase in spiritual blessing with God's increases. He'll bless you with an increase of knowledge and wisdom. He'll bless you with grace, holiness, and joy. And those who God blesses are truly blessed. Those who God increases are made wiser and better and acceptable to God and for heaven. 
And it's promised that this will be, first of all, a constant, continual increase. And notice he says, he shall increase you more and more. So that as you, so as long as you live, you shall still be increasing. Proverbs 4, 18 says, like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. That, that increase and increase will come to the day of your perfection. When you're in your glorified body. It's a family increase, he says here, to you and your children. And it's a comfort to parents to see their children increasing in wisdom and strength. There's a blessing that's assigned to the children of those that fear God even in the early years. Those that the Lord blesses have encouragement enough to trust in the Lord as their help and as their shield. Why? Because he's the one who made the heavens and the earth. So his blessings are free. Why? Because he doesn't need anything himself. So we're rich. Why? Because he has all things at his command for us if we fear him and we trust in him. He made heaven and earth. And because he has, he can no doubt make those happy that trust in him. And you know what? He'll do it. So now, knowing that, what should our response be? Since God is all-powerful and He's not like idols that can't do anything, our response should be, we should trust Him. But more than that, what should our response be to His goodness to us and His faithfulness to bless us? Small and great alike, verses 16 and 18, as we close, suggest a couple of things. Let's read 16 and 18 now. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and evermore. So again, how should we respond to his goodness and to his faithfulness to bless us? Well, verses 16 through 18 suggests a couple of things. First, be faithful stewards. Verse 16 doesn't mean that God doesn't care or have any interest in the earth. And that he's only concerned about heaven. It means that God, who is the maker of heaven and earth... And because he possesses both heaven and earth, he has made men and women stewards of the material world. He's put us in charge of the material world so that we're responsible to him for what we do with it. And people can use it to enrich themselves. And and many times they do at the expense of others. Even if the world itself, again, like a lot of people do, they, you know, they, they, they use it for their glory, for their own benefit. They can abuse creation or they can use their share of the world's goods and resources to honor God. And secondly, the second thing is we can praise God continuously. We must praise God as the wonderful, reliable and kind God that he is. And you know what? We need to let others know about him. And we should do this, he says here, as long as we live. Why? So that God's people praise him before others as he said there at the end of the verse forevermore as he says in verse 18 now his words here are are a challenge to us if we're going to praise god like we should and must if we're christians we have to do it obviously while we're still alive we've been given an an amazing remarkable he's been he's given us amazing spiritual victories in our life that we can share with people. We can describe them as victories over sin, 
telling people how God gave me victory over drugs or alcohol or some other thing that, that I was in bondage to. How he's given me victory over trials. How he's given me victory over illnesses, over death, and the devil. But do we acknowledge these victories to others? Or do we keep them to ourselves? Do we remember them? Do we think about them? Do we tell others about them? And most of all, do we thank him and praise him for them? Charles Spurgeon said, Though the dead cannot, the wicked will not, and the careless do not praise God, yet we will shout hallelujah forever and ever. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful psalm, God. And again, as the psalmist said, Lord, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Father, we thank you. We, bring, we, we give you glory, God. We, we give you honor. We give you all the praise, Lord, for our lives, for our salvation, for our victories, Lord, for our struggles. God, for all that you've done for us, Lord. You, you've carried many of us for years, Lord. You've held us up. You've strengthened us, Lord. You've get, gotten us through the hard times and the hard knocks in life, God. Lord, you, you've, you've delivered us from dangerous situations, Lord. You've delivered us from the lion's den, from the fiery furnace, God. We can go on and on and on, God. Lord, help us not to be forgetful. Help us to be mindful of these things. Help us to praise and to thank you for them all the time, Lord. And more important, may we share them, Lord, with those around us. God, might we be a light in a dark place. Father, so many people are hopeless. They're lost. They're just roaming. They're roaming around in this darkness. They're, they're groping for something substantial to hold on to, Lord. And the Bible tells us we have the anchor. We're anchored deep in Christ, Lord. When the winds blow and the rains come, Lord, we're standing strong because we're on that solid foundation, Lord. So many people need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, the solid rock, the anchor. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never made that commitment to Jesus Christ. And you're, you're, you're just merely existing in this world. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what to do. You have so many questions and no answers. Well, Jesus is the answer. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God's Spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize, man, I, I need Christ. I need direction. I need strength. I need victory over sin. I need victory over struggles. I need guidance and wisdom in the things that I'm going through. Jesus is all wise. In him is wisdom, infinite wisdom, strength, deliverance. So as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.